let's pray, then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to come and dwell with you tonight. And I ask God that you will fan the flame on the altar of our hearts, God, and make us a house of prayer. So, Lord, put fuel upon the fire and awaken a godly and holy desire to commune with you unlike we've ever seen. God, cultivate deep prayer lives in the heart of this church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. If you have your Bibles open to uh, Matthew chapter 6. We'll read that portion together in a minute. It's good to be back. I was in uh, Kansas City last week at a place called IHOP, International House of Pancakes, no, <laughs> prayer, and I uh, was really blessed seeing the, just the heart for prayer that they've cultivated, 19 years straight, 24-7 prayer and worship. So I got to spend some time there, and it was good as preparing to uh, spend the next five weeks here uh, talking about that very topic, which is prayer, and uh, something that's very important to me, and so we're going to really spend the first fruits of this year uh, as a community uh, going after that. So I'm going to talk tonight about uh, the purpose of prayer, why we pray, and the next four weeks are going to be the practice of prayer and trying to create a really practical space to learn how we pray. Uh, a lot of times we can hear great sermons on prayer, but it does not translate into a growing prayer life. Does that make sense? So my hope is to both bring inspiration and then also uh, just space to actually practice it together and learn what does it mean to pray. I think this is a lifelong uh, endeavor, so this will not be uh, a five weeks and then we're done, but it will be hopefully um, some time, and if the Lord wants to go longer, we'll go longer, but to really cultivate this. Uh, so uh, in the video you saw Divine Invitation. We're going to call it Divine Invitation because I believe prayer is not about what we are doing for God. It ultimately begins with what God has invited us into himself. Uh, in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, we see this God who spoke and created, and the, begin the Bible starts with God uh, in Revelation. It ends with this man, Jesus, resurrected from the dead, who says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And essentially, the whole book in the middle of you know, the beginning and the end uh, is full of divine human interaction. Right? That is what created the Bible. That is what's created this thing we call Christianity, Right, is this human divine relationship and prayer is God's invitation to get in the mix of that story, to get ourselves and weave into this thing that God is doing in the earth. And it's incredible. And uh, I believe prayer is the greatest gift that God's given us. It's the treasure, it's the great gift of heaven that God is saying, you have access to me. Come, let's start talking. Let's start communicating. I want you in my story, right? Who wants to be a part of God's story, right? God in uh, asking us to pray, because, again, so many times we look at it as if, you know, this obligation, I should pray more. I wish I had a buck for every time someone told me that. I should pray more. 
when someone says I should pray more, I was like, I'm just like, all right, we got to twist our thinking here. It's not like I should pray more. It's like God himself is wooing us into a place where he can disclose his goodness to us. I should pray more doesn't make sense. It's like I'm craving to pray more. I'm searching my life trying to find another just chunk of time that I can just be with him. Right? That's the language of romance. That's the language of love. And Jesus is very openly romancing your heart. He's disclosing his intentions. There's nothing hidden. You don't have to second guess. He is after you completely. And prayer is him asking you, wooing you, will you come away with me? Will you let me draw you away from the noise and the hustle bustle of life to the secret place so I can show you who I am? I believe uh, saying yes to that invitation is one of the most important decisions we make, and we make it every day. And Jesus characterized, he, he lived this more than anyone and I, I, I so want the same passion he had for prayer to be in my own heart. I, I want to comprehend what it would be like to spend the night on the mountain with God pretty regularly based on what particularly Luke shows us. He would minister all day. Usually when I minister all day, like when I'm in India, I want to go to bed and sleep. He would minister all day. And then he'd go on the mountain all night and be with his father. I want to know that. I want to know that type of passion. I want to know that type of love. So I believe uh, prayer will grow uh, as we learn to respond to what he's pursuing us with, right? It's an invitation. Uh, we can get legalistic and religious when we start looking at it as a discipline. It is a discipline, but it doesn't start with us. It starts with him. So I want to uh, just talk about a few aspects uh, tonight of what I believe the life of prayer consists of. Uh, and then hopefully just give us space to kind of call, like a call, uh, for us to just say, God, this is what I'm going to give. This is where I'm going to go. This is what I want to cultivate in my life this year, this time, in these next five weeks. And so the, the first thing uh, that I felt the Lord put on my heart is that a life of prayer is a life of purity. A life of prayer is a life of purity. We've been talking about purity a lot. We've been talking about the sanctified life. Uh, There's a lot of stripping, pruning, down, surrendering, tears in the last months, right? And it's to become a pure, whole heart, right? Who wants to be a pure-hearted, a whole-hearted person in the way they live a life? That's one of my utmost desires, as I want to live with purity, right? And purity, if you get down to its most basic definition, it's singularity, and so purity uh, is when you live your life with one dominating paramount priority to it. And I believe that priority is to be prayer. So when we make prayer the paramount issue of our lives, and let me define paramount. Uh, it's actually a political term, the word paramount. And it would be uh, the name that they would attach to the like agenda and the lawmaking agenda or the things of the nations that need to be addressed. It's the issue that when the Congress would convene, they, they would not do anything else until the paramount issue was addressed. Does that make sense? So when prayer becomes the paramount 
issue of our life, the thing that has to be addressed before any of the other things, important things. But before I get to anything, if prayer becomes the paramount, the absolute singular focus of my life, that's when you're living a pure life. Because you're saying then, not just through your confession of your mouth, but through the way you actually live and invest your time and your passion and your affections, you're saying, Jesus is the singular passion of my life. Jesus is the singular expression. It's He is everything to me. Not just when I sing it on Sunday, but in the way I live my life. Does this make sense? That's a life of purity. That is a life of singular singularity, right? It's Jesus, right? And it's not that you only spend time praying, but it's that prayer is the paramount issue of each day of your life. I have to be in my Father's house. I have to be connected, just like Jesus. I can't do anything the Father doesn't do. How are you going to know what the Father's doing if you haven't spent time with him? Are you following me? Prayer is a life, a uh, life of prayer is a life of purity. I believe what often keeps us from living with this type of singularity uh, as it pertains to prayer in, in Jesus is it's not the bad things. Those obviously will distract us, but I believe it's the good things in life that are the hardest. And, uh, you know, to name a few, uh, your family, friends, relationships, your job, uh, the important things Uh, There's a lot of important things that we all have. And those are the things that can easily become very minor distractions uh, that make it so that we're not living with this singularity. And uh, I believe that even the good things, and the good things probably the hardest, um, need to be put on the altar. And what that then means is uh, every time you come to your children or to the things that you love, or to your job, or to, like, right, your ministry, all the amazing things. But every time you come to them, you approach them, it's with fear and trembling, because they're on the altar. And so when you, and you recognize that when you have them, or when you're with them, or when you're using it, depending on what these good things are, it's, you're, you're stewarding God's possessions, not your own. Does this make sense? It's like, they're not my kids. What did we just do? We just dedicated these children on the altar. If we take that serious, which I promise you God takes it serious, they're his kids. Even before they're ours, they're his. So when we come to them, they can't become, they can't get before the singular paramount issue, which is prayer. Are you following me? Because they belong to him. Right? If it's, it's, our, it's my ministry. What about my ministry? My ministry is my workplace. I've got this ministry. I've got this influence, God. No, no, no. That belongs to me. You put it on the altar. So when you come to it, it's with fear and trembling saying, okay, I'm going to steward this, but I know who it belongs to. Right? And, you're not, you, and you have to approach it with this fear and trembling. And the way you approach something with fear and trembling is through prayer. So uh, the good things, even the good things must be put on the altar. Um, I want to speak to the marketplace. I'm always quite conscientious of marketplace because I believe, you know, 95-something percent of the body of Christ called to the marketplace, not called to the church. And a lot of times we have this misnomer. People are like, you know, Jordan, you're a pastor. It's easy for you to talk about prayer. Prayer needs to be so paramount. You need to do it all the time. But you're a pastor. It's easy, man, for you. I'm working eight hours. And it's true, right? And then I come home, and I got these responsibilities, and I got those responsibilities, and life is full of stuff to do. Amen? 
right? But I want to demonk this myth for you real quick. Um, pastors don't have it easy. There are so many distractions, just as many as anybody working nine to five to not pray. I cannot tell you, I've heard from many pastors' mouths, I'm too busy to pray. Or for the first 20 years of my ministry, I was too busy to pray. You say, what? What do you do? Just plan a sermon, right? No, like it's real life, right? There's finances and this. You've got to get a new office space. got to build this. got to do that. This happens. That happens, right? Life in ministry can demand my time. And the biggest attack that I see is the subtle one that the enemy throws at me to get me out of the prayer closet, right? And I don't say this to say poor me, yada, yada, yada. But just to say everyone is in an equal place where prayer is hard, to prioritize. There is a lot of opposition, and it's because I believe we have an adversary that knows what he's doing. So when he goes after to attack from praying, it's to get you from praying. He will do anything to keep you from praying, especially get you doing good things, even Christian things, even like holy things. But if you're doing those things before you're in intimacy with God, it's not working. Right? It's, it's, you're doing it out of striving. You're doing it out of your own effort. He knows Satan is not stupid. He will, he will attack, right? So I say this all to say is that to the marketplace minister, prayer must be paramount in your life if you want to have the impact that you were God-ordained to have in this earth. Amen? But what about the question, do I have enough time? This is the big one, time. Time. How valuable is time? I think the older I get, the more I realize, wow, time is valuable. It's a gift. I wish I had more. Who said that before? I wish I had 28 hours in a day, right? Uh, I don't believe time is the issue. Uh, time is a servant of God. We forget this. He doesn't live bound by it. And I've heard it said God's timing is more important than time. So God can bless your time supernaturally, right? And I believe he does this when you do it his way. When we prioritize prayer um, and make it the paramount issue of our lives, the singular focus to be in presence, in, the commun in communion with Jesus, when we do this, the blessing of heaven falls upon our time, right? Has anybody seen, you know, those little jars? I should have done it up here, but you know the jars where they put the big rocks in and the little rocks, then all the sand and the thing just like fills up? Right, then they do it the switch way. They put the sand and the little rocks. You can't even get the little rocks in, much less the big ones. Have you seen this? You know what I'm talking about? I feel like that is such a prophetic picture of doing it God's way. See, doing it God's way, when you actually obey him, say, okay, I'm going to spend time. I'm going to make prayer. I'm going to make intimacy the singular focus of my life. You say, man, I'm not going to have enough time to do what I'm called to do. How, that's irresponsible to say no to these pressing things. And forsake the eternal. Right? That's actually foolishness. But we've bought into it. Hook, line, and sinker as a culture. Let me respond to the emergency, to the immediate, to the pressing. And we say no to the subtle wooing of Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and creator of the universe. Whoa! Right? So we're in this battlefield in a way of all these things that are loud and loud and screaming for our time, and then this subtle, gentle, massive, momentous wooing of God into his heart. 
right? But when we do it the right way, when we prioritize the eternal before the temporal, all of a sudden, that 24-hour jar, it's like, I didn't know that much stuff could fit into it. Are you kidding me? How's that happening? How, how did all of that happen? I spent an hour and a half in prayer that I should have been sending emails. How did that all happen? It's a miracle. It requires faith. I believe that investing time with Jesus is the most faith-filled thing we can do each day. So it's saying, I actually think you're telling the truth. I actually think you're able. I actually think you're able to run the whole world, and your plan's better than mine. Your kingdom might be upside down, doesn't make sense to me, but I believe it. Are you following me? It's, it's saying it. Like, sometimes we forget, like, I like to say things with my actions to God in prayer. I like to pray to him with my actions. And an hour and a half, when I don't really have it, is a really loud prayer. Are you following me? We got to pray to him with our actions. We have to worship him with the way that we spend our time. Time is money, right? I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Don't take that theological or philosophical too far. But what we're saying in that is time is valuable. Time means something. You don't get it back. And when we give him time, I think our time, uh, that's, that's harder to do than our money. You agree? 10% is easy for me. Yeah, here you go, Lord. What about 10% of our time? Not so easy. Right? It takes planning, focus, preparation, intentionality. Martin Luther was famous for saying this. Oh my, I'm so busy today. I'm going to have to pray three hours if I'm going to get it all done. <laughs> I like that. I have so much to do today. I'm going to have to pray three hours if I'm going to be able to do it. What would it look like for us to embody this? A life of prayer is a life of purity. And I feel that God is calling us in this season to let's act on that. We've had the altar calls. We've had the, you know, the, the times like, okay, hey, Lord, sanctify me. I believe the fruit of sanctified life is a life of prayer. Because you want to be with the one your soul loves got to respond to his invitation, respond to that wooing. Come away with me. Trust me. Give me your time. Give me your time. Give me your heart. Matthew 6. We'll start verse 19. I'm going to read verse 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon, depending on your translation. Uh, I like uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is your passion, your affection. Like where your treasure is, is where you'll invest your time. I don't think that's a stretch. Where your treasure is, is what you will spend your time thinking and longing and wanting to be in and with. Who's your treasure? Don't, not just what your mind says when I ask you that. What did your, the way you live your life, what does it say about where your treasure is? About who your treasure is? We're all going to have to stand before God and answer that question. And I think we should ask it sooner than later. Secondly, it talks about purity. The eye is the lamp of the body. And it makes this association that the eye uh, set on God is purity. It's full of light. And the eye, the bad eye, which would be set on mammon, uh, is dark. And I believe the eye set on God, like I said, is exemplified of the life of prayer. Your eye, your singular devotion is Jesus, and so you're full of light. A life of prayer is a life of purity. But the eye that is set on wealth, mammon, other things, it's dark. And I believe uh, that prayerlessness is, is a sin in that it creates darkness within our hearts because there's division. It's a divided heart. A life of prayerlessness is a life of a divided heart. And we were not created to live as a divided heart. It's a singular focus upon Jesus. And that does not mean we sacrifice all the important things. It just means what's the paramount issue? What comes first? May we become a people of purity and a people of prayer. That's my desire for myself and for all of us. Secondly, a life of prayer is a life of meaning. Viktor Frankl says this, the chief desire of man is not pleasure, it's meaning. I like that. If you can turn your Bibles to John 15, I want to read a few verses. We'll read verse 4 and 5 and 6. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That is both a wonderful and terrifying verse. I get an amen. 
<laughs> Five of you are like, no, nope, not amen. And, <laughs> you know, I read this fullness verses chapter that I read more than any other chapter in the Bible. And I love the fruitfulness verses. I love the bears much fruit. I love, you know, later I'm his friend. He tells me things, yada, yada. But I don't really like, it's uncomfortable if I ever sit on those words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? And I found uh, that I don't necessarily always believe that word. And I found that really, as the body of Christ, we don't necessarily believe that. We don't act on it. We don't, we don't live with this holy fear of like, whoa, apart from making Jesus the singular devotion of my life, I can do nothing. If you believe that, prayerlessness makes no sense. Or half-hearted prayer makes no sense. Or occasional prayer or comfortable prayer, whenever it fits, doesn't make sense. Because you can't do anything without abiding. So I like to ask myself questions. And, you know, I've asked myself, why don't we believe this? You know, why don't we believe this with so many people, you know, not bolstering vital prayer lives? And I believe that we don't believe this. It's, it's because we've mistaken movement for momentum. We've mistaken busyness for fruitfulness. The truth is that life is not a merry-go-round. It's a marathon. There's a beginning, there's an end, and it's a long race, but every step counts. Right? And in, sometimes in life we can lose sight of this. Uh, we start thinking, you know, everything's just kind of cyclical, and I'm going through the motions, Right? And we're like, oh, okay, well, there's a lot of movement in my life. There's a lot of things happening. I'm really busy. I must be abiding in God. I'm really busy. There's lots of movement. And what we're doing is we're, it's like, is anybody familiar with a riptide in the ocean? Right, what happens, the waves are crashing in, but that thing will suck you so far out, you don't even know what happens. I believe that uh, when you're in the spirit, a life of prayer, you are being drawn by a force much greater than a riptide. But it is deep beneath the surface and you cannot see it. Does this make sense? Okay, but busyness is the waves. You're like, oh, well, the waves are crashing. The waves are crashing. The waves are crashing. At the surface, there's movement happening. So it must be good. Right? And But... The surface isn't always indicative of what's taking place deep beneath. Are you following me? Even the way that ships travel the ocean, it's not by what, which direction the waves are going. They're not trying to surf waves. They're getting on the deep currents that will move them thousands of miles. Are you following me? We mistake that there's busyness, there's movement happening, and we're being lured into this temporal mindset thinking that there's things happening when we're on a big merry-go-round because those waves aren't taking us anywhere. And we're missing the current of God's grace that says, I know the plans I have for you. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the author and the perfecter of your faith. 
Every single day of your life, I am pouring my grace and my love. And I'm intentionally designing and wooing and bringing you on a story that only I can write. And we miss this deep momentum of God because we're so alert by these temporalities and these emergencies and these things that can make us feel so important sometimes if we're honest with ourselves. But they're just waves crashing on the surface and we're missing the deep stirrings of His Spirit. A life of prayer is a life of meaning because it positions you to ride the current of God's grace. A prayer I pray often, I prayed it for years, as I say, God, let me live today in a way that will impact my children, which are unborn, and my grandchildren, which are very unborn. <laughs> just want to clarify that. But I pray that prayer because it positions my mind to see eternity. It positions my mind to see. It gives me perspective that my life's bigger than me. That there's eternity in my heart. And God made me to live in such a way that I pass a legacy on once I leave. And I think it is a mistake to ever forget that these 80 years that God's given us, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't end at 80 years. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. Right? We're supposed to live in such a way that we make an impact into eternity. We were created for it. There's something in us that craves it. There's something in us that won't be satisfied until we do it. There's, it's like, why is my purpose? Why am I here? we got to find it, and it's deep, it's intuitive, it's, it's driving us all the time. But the only way we will be successful and accomplish that for which he laid hold of us is if we make Jesus the singular devotion of our lives. It's the only way. It's the only way. Our striving, our effort, our discipline, our, it will all fall a million miles short. We're a little ship lost at sea with a row trying to row across the Atlantic Ocean. If we don't position ourselves to yield and say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to spend my time striving. I'm going to spend my time abiding with you in the secret place. And making you the paramount issue of every day. The, par- the, the, the thing that I have to get this answer. Because I have to satisfy this one desire today. Because everything else is nothing. Unless I do. I'm not putting time restraints. I'm not putting. It doesn't need to look like anything. But in your heart it just needs to say. Jesus, you are the paramount issue of my life. It's going to look different. You're going to have different times. John Wesley's wife had whatever she had, 17 kids running around. And her secret place, she'd pull her her apron over her head. (laughs) And that is where she communed with God. Never tried that. 
So do not put some type of formulaic religious box around what I'm saying. It just needs to look like what it's supposed to look like for you. Everything I just said uh, was said in an individual way. You connected to that at an individual level, I hope. And it's true at an individual level. But it's also true at a corporate level. And I want to speak to that in prayer's role in the purposes of God corporately. Right? Redemption, God's redemption in the earth, which started after the fall of man, was most manifest uh, through the, the coming of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And then he's also coming again. Uh, his redemption is progressive. And what I mean by that is, uh, again, it's not a merry-go-round with God. Right? There is a beginning and there is an end. And every step is a journey deeper into him revealing who he is and revealing his purposes on the earth. Right? So revival is his tool, is a, a huge tool of redemption. Uh, and revival is also progressive, right? God is doing something very intentionally over centuries in the earth, right? So there's redemp it's, it's uh, progressive. So sometimes we want to look at something like revival and we're like, oh, we're just praying, you know, for God to pour out his spirit and amazing things to start happening. Uh, and in a way that's an aspect of revival, but I want to kind of define for you the nature of revival and give a context for what I believe God is calling us into as his people alive on the earth today, alive in a very specific time and season of his progressive redemptive story, right? There is something that he is doing today that he wasn't doing yesterday and he won't be doing in another 50 years, but there's something he's doing today and I and we want to be a part of that, amen? That is why we're here. That's why we're seeking him. Right, so revival is progressive. Let me give some examples of what I mean by this. So revival history date back, dates back to the Reformation is really when this terminology started being used. Uh, you could look um, before that for like pockets or individuals uh, that you could um, label with that category. But this is kind of classic revival history. So the first uh, is the Reformation here, uh, which was around 1500. The Reformation, God revealed through the Reformation primarily four things. Uh, the authority of Scripture was restored to the body of Christ. Uh, the priesthood of all believers became a, uh, a doctrine that, was, uh, that God revealed and was very empowering. Uh, the public preaching of the Word of God and inspired music, right? These things were, like, not normal in the day, and they burst through, right? We look at all those things, we're like, yeah, no, duh. It's because we're progressing. Are you following me? God revealed that in 1500. That's like a truth we take for granted now, right? In the 1700, 1700 to 799, so uh, 18th century, uh, we had the evangelical revivals. These, uh, God revealed this, uh, these crisis conversion experiences, uh, uh, experiential salvation. That's where we sang tonight, come to the altar. Uh, that wasn't a normal thing. That was in this revival. People came realized they could have profound personal experiences of conversion marked by transformation of their lives. And uh, lastly, 
a new birth, a doctrine of new birth and a new creation of Christ was expounded upon. So again, these are things we take for granted. These were the fruits of revival. Uh, the 19th century, we call the deeper life revivals, and these primi primarily started uh, ex uh, revealing uh, the inner life and this uh, this inner journey that we have within. This was uh, the fruit of these revivals. You can do more research on these. Um, these are classic terms, so you can Google them if you want. Uh, or come talk to me. I have a book that would be a great resource uh, by Rhonda Huey. She's amazing and uh, has a wealth of knowledge about uh, revival and history. Uh, the 20th century, we had the Pentecostal holiness revivals. Uh, these uh, exemplified God released the spiritual gifts, uh, the baptism of the spirit, the sanctification experiences. Uh, again, things we talk about, birth and revival. Uh, and then in the 1990s, there was uh, what has been come to call the Toronto outpouring. Uh, which is still controversial in the earth today, but God revealed the Father heart of God through this revival. Right? So what I'm trying to make sense of here is that God is, right, this isn't like a merry-go-round. It's not like, hey, let's just do another revival. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Right? God's like, are you following me? We're on a journey. We're on a journey. And the end of it is a wedding. It's a wedding with a real man named Jesus. And God's releasing revelation of who he is so that we can make ourselves ready for him. That's the nature. That's the essence. It's the purpose of revival. We want to learn about who God is. So the question that floors me today is, God, what are you doing today? What are you wanting to reveal today in your progressive plan of redemption? Right? So when I say we have this call to revival, we talk about that here. I'm not just like, hey, God, just send this rad revival. We're saying, God, we want to be on the pioneering, right on the cutting edge of what you're revealing into the earth today. Because you are unsearchable, and we've only just begun to see who you are, Jesus. And I just want to be a part of what you're doing today. I want to I be faithful to this legacy that's been laid for 2,000 years in the faith, almost. Like 15 years, 2,000 years. I want to be faithful and then go one step further so that we can pass this legacy on to the next generation. Right? I believe uh, that's, that will only happen if all of us say yes to the call of prayer. Right? So there's three stages in revival if you study them. Uh, there's a preparation stage, there's a visitation stage, and there's a transformation stage. Uh, the visitation stage is what we all think of when we say revival. It's when God moves. There's amazing things. We've read it in history books. If you haven't read in history books, get a book by John G. Lake or the Welsh Revival. There's these powerful visitations of God. And these normally, historically speaking, they last three years. Right? But what is overlooked is that revival is a three-part process. The first is preparation. And in every great move of God, there has always preceded a great move of preparation, which is when the people of God begin to pray. When the people of God begin to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, they begin to repent, turn, turn from their wicked ways, seek his face, and prepared a place for the dove of heaven to come land. And it's not necessarily a land, but it's a people. It's the priesthood. So as we pray, we begin to cultivate the propensity for him to come and rest upon not an individual but a group of people, a church, a community, the visitation, right? So preparation precedes 
the visitation. The visitation comes, historically speaking, last three years, and then it transfers into what we would call transformation, which is when th- what God is revealing and, and gifting of himself through this time then gets disseminated into the church and into culture. That's a beautiful process. That's a life that echoes in eternity. That's when a people say, we just want to be a part of what you're doing, God. We just, we just, we just want to play, even if it's so small. But we know it's still significant. A piece of this beautiful meta-narrative that God is writing through the centuries, through human beings. The alpha and the omega He's got to end, but he was inviting all of us. He's inviting us to play a part of this grand story. And even if it's just a thread in the tapestry of heaven, I want to play my part and I want to be that thread. I just want to see him. So I believe that if we all will make prayer the paramount issue of our lives, we will prepare a place for the dove to land. We will make ready our hearts. We will make ready uh, the soil of this city to grow something beautiful, to God, to release uh, his presence, his revival, a revival from heaven that will bring transformation to our city, to our nation, uh, which is in desperate need of it. I believe God's looking for weak, ordinary, and willing people to do extraordinary things through. So why not us? Why can't we be a place where God reveals his heart? Why can't we be a people that step in to this progressive new revelation of the eternal God that is unchanging? Why can't we be those vessels? Why can't Boise, Idaho be a place known for the glory of God? It can. Yes and yes and yes and yes. If we will humble ourselves and seek the face of God. And make him the paramount issue of our lives. It's that simple. But it's extremely difficult. It's sacrifice. Simple sacrifice. So I'm going to close tonight uh, just with prayer. And, you know, we, I don't know what the future's uh, going to look like as far as, uh, you know, prayer ministry within this church. I believe that God's calling us to build a house of prayer. Uh, he spoke this to me recently, and uh, to create a space that is wholly devoted unto the Lord. Um, we don't have that yet. I believe God's desiring to bring that into the city. But uh, we do have options. Uh, we have Tuesday mornings at 6, which is right here. Uh, we have pre-service prayer. We have some other options. But not that I'm trying to make a ministry plug. Um, I'm just trying to say there are spaces to come, uh, and I encourage you to that. But really... Uh, I just want uh, this to be a time that you can say yes to God. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you this time. I'm going to make this a priority in my life. I just, even if it's just, Lord, here's my, help me. Like, whatever it is, I just, I don't want us living on the merry-go-round anymore. In no way. And I'm speaking to myself. There are two things. Just two weeks ago, I was in a very powerful time of worship. The Lord told me two things. Two things that split my vision. And I wept. I said, you're right. Make me pure. Make me pure. So I'm with you, um, but I just want us to have a, just a moment here, consecration. It says, God, 
I want to make you the singular fascination of my life, the singular devotion of my time. And so uh, if you want to do that, you know, you can come forward and kneel. You can kneel at your seat. Um, is Jordan in here? Maybe. Jordan. It doesn't matter. Uh, just maybe dim the lights a little bit, and uh, let's just pray for a few moments, and then, then we'll be done. Lord, you see the hearts and the cries of your people. My prayer is simple tonight, God. It's that you make us a house of prayer. Make us a living house of prayer. Lord, that means uh, 300 different things to 300 different people in this room. Different ways of praying, different times of being with you. But it's all the same vein, the same DNA that you're paramount, God. So show us how to do it. Help us in our weakness. And I ask that you will draw us with cords of loving kindness, that you will awaken such a, a holy jealousy for the heart of Jesus, that we will love you with the same jealousy that you love us. That we will seek you the same fervor that you seek us, God. Do a work of grace in us, God. Take us deeper. Purify us. Clean and holy unto you. And may we not just pray with our words, God, but pray with our actions. Loud prayers with our actions. We believe you. We love you. And I thank you for what you're doing right now in this house, God.